This is Looking Closer. I'm Jeffrey Overstreet, and I'm thinking back to when I was nine years old. I hadn't seen many movies yet. I'd seen Snow White and the Seven Dwarves and a few other Disney animated films. I was probably the world's biggest fan of the Muppet movie. I certainly did not see Ridley Scott's Alien when it opened in theaters in 79. I vaguely remember seeing the advertisement for the movie, and I remember the tagline, In space, no one can hear you scream, and that troubled me, although now that tagline seems a little silly in retrospect. I think I saw Alien for the first time, probably on a small TV with a VHS tape, probably with a friend, probably at a slumber party, probably in a situation where I could press pause and get up and get something to drink and laugh about how uncomfortable I was feeling. I never had that experience with an audience of this film as it was new, as it was delivering suspense and terror in a way audiences had never experienced before. And it's amazing how well it holds up. The film still scares the daylights out of me whenever I watch it. So why do I love it? Probably because it is so well made. There are a lot of silences. It's very spacious. That's a word I use a lot when I talk about Alien. It gives us a lot of room for our imaginations to wonder about what we aren't being shown, what we aren't being told, what isn't explained, what is a mystery for the characters in the film. We follow the crew of the Nostromo, as you probably remember, answering a distress call to a, to a base where they find signs of an infestation, and then strange pod-like eggs, and then a small crab-like scuttling creature that is part scorpion, part, I don't know, deep sea organism, and then one of them suffers an attack from one of these creatures, when he is rescued from its death grip around his throat, we experience some relief and we keep wondering about the nature of this creature they've discovered when everything goes terribly, terribly wrong. And we learn that just because they were able to separate this predator from its prey does not mean that he is all right. Not at all. I don't think I need to describe the scene uh, where the crew of the Nostromo gathers for dinner. Uh, it's one of the most memorable scenes in the history of movies. I admire the craftsmanship of this film because the actors are so at home in their roles. Because the sets do not seem designed to entertain us or intrigue us with busyness. Uh, everything is extremely practical. Everything is designed just to achieve practical ends. It doesn't feel like uh, a very welcoming human place for human beings. It feels cold and clinical and unpleasant. That's the genius of this film. The human beings shouldn't be there, shouldn't be working in those conditions, shouldn't be treated the way they are by the corporation that has sent them into space. So for a good deal of the movie, we are focused on this alien threat, this monster that is wreaking havoc. But slowly we begin to realize there is something much more insidious at work. It is not a threat from the outside. It is a threat from the inside. It is a danger of the heart. This is why I think Alien lasts as a classic, as a meaningful horror film. If I'm to be honest, I think that none of the sequels have lived up to the achievement of that first film, even though James Cameron's sequel Aliens is certainly memorable for its suspense and for its 
visual extravagance and for the way it takes everything from that first film and makes it even bigger and even more dramatic. I think there is plenty to admire about Alien 3, even though it's one of the most famously troubled productions in Hollywood history, probably. And in the more recent sequels, we see Ridley Scott exploring larger philosophical questions and giving great actors like Michael Fassbender opportunities to shine. But I'm tempted to call Alien 1979 a perfect horror movie, much the way that the character played by Ian Holm Ash calls the alien predator a perfect organism. Everything seems finely tuned, carefully calibrated to disturb us, and what is more, to disturb us for good reasons. We should be scared of what's troubling us at the heart of this movie. We should be looking around and seeing how as wild and strange as this, as this uh, sort of steampunk science fiction seems to be, it represents things that are happening in the real world all the time. Whenever I watch an alien movie, I look around for somebody to talk with about it because there is a lot to discuss, even in the movies I'm not particularly fond of, like Alien Resurrection. So I was thrilled when I found out that Sarah Welch Larson, a friend of mine, a graduate of my alma mater, Seattle Pacific University, and one of my favorite writers on the subject of film, was focusing her first full book, on the Alien franchise, on the questions that it raises, and on the theological implications of this series, a subject I don't remember reading about anywhere. Guided by conscience, she illuminates this shape-shifting series with moral vision. This is a work of outstanding critical inquiry. As she surgically studies an epic battle of good versus, well, what she calls discreation, her insights flare like Ripley's flamethrower, and you can tell it's personal with her. I'm tempted to call it perfect criticism. So look for Becoming Alien from Cascade Books. It'll be released in mid-March 2021, coming right up. I should read the full title because it's impressive. Becoming Alien, The Beginning and End of Evil in science fiction's most idiosyncratic film franchise. This book is part of the Real Spirituality monograph, and I highly recommend it to you. If that hasn't intrigued you enough, well, let's hear from the author herself. I am delighted to bring you my conversation with Sarah Welch Larson. It's such a pleasure to get to talk to you about this. I have been looking forward to this for so long. Um, Me too. <laughs> wow. Um, Sarah Welch Larson, I kind of knew who you were when you were a student here at Seattle Pacific University, where I'm teaching now, and it just makes me wish I had been teaching here then so we could have had classes together, mm -hmm. um, because I learn as much from you as I, as I would ever hope to teach. Um, but where did we... Where did we really meet? So I think we we didn't officially meet until probably a year after I started doing it, but um, it was at the Kindling's Muse podcast tapings. The Kindling's um, Muse, yes. Yeah, how many, so how many I would come. Know what that is anymore? <laughs> I'm not sure. Um, I just know that I went like regularly, religiously, 
um, in the upper room at Hale's Ales before I could legally drink. Uh, they just let anybody in there apparently. <laughs> um, and I would ask questions. And then of course, once I turned 21, I would also get a beer. And then I think the first time we officially met was after a Kindling's Muse taping. And we just like went downstairs to the tap room and had a drink. And we were like, oh my gosh, like, why have we not been talking before right. this? Okay. This is all yeah. coming back now. Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. And I, we, I mean, I should mention, I should never mention the Kindling's Muse without uh, the, I should, I should pronounce this carefully. The Kindling's Muse. That's kindling like firewood. Um, uh, Kindlings is a community of people interested in art, faith, and culture that was kindled by uh, the great radio broadcaster and author uh, Dick Staub. Um, and eventually um, uh, he started uh, this, this panel discussion conversation about faith, art, and culture called the Kindling's Muse, which, as you said, would meet in the, the upper room of, of Hale's uh, pub and brewery uh, in, in Seattle's sort of Fremont Ballard neighborhood mm -hmm. or Freelard, right as they call two, it. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and people would actually buy tickets and eat dinner and listen to a bunch of nerds talk about music or movies or the Oscars or Star Wars or whatever. Um, and then ask questions and it would just be a grand old time. And I, I got to participate several times and, and really loved that and, and met some good friends there. So of course, that's where we met. The writing about film you have done uh, for websites, especially Brightwall Darkroom, is both thrilling to me. And then I get to go to my class and go, do you see what graduates of Seattle Pacific University can do if they learn to write? Uh, these great writers that we are studying here in this class were sitting where you are sitting just a few years ago. Um, you know, and then they think I taught you and I have to correct them. But yes. <laughs> so I am so excited that we get to talk about this, uh, the publication of uh, your first book and the first book I've ever seen that is a deep dive into the, the theological questions and implications of the Alien franchise, one of my one of my favorite branches of, of cinema. Uh, so this book is called Becoming Alien. And then brace yourself because the subtitle is not to be taken lightly. The beginning and end of evil in science fiction's most idiosyncratic film franchise. I used to think the subtitle to my movie book was cumbersome, but wow, that is <laughs> that is specific and thorough, and it makes me want to start reading it for the first time all over again. Leave uh, no so, stone unturned. <laughs> so let's just call it Becoming Alien, uh, so we don't overwhelm the listeners. But yes, uh, this is coming out from Cascade Books, and I thought, oh, I'll just kick back and enjoy uh, revisiting this uh, series of movies that I have very mixed feelings about. And I, I opened the cover and it says for mom. And I thought, oh, this is gonna be, you know, I, I should like be sitting by a fireplace and having some hot cocoa. And then I started reading and I realized, nope, I need to sit up straight. I need to get out a notebook and be ready to take notes. I need my laptop nearby so I can look things up because you are, you are referring to theologians I am unfamiliar with. And a few pages in, I am realizing I need to go back and watch these movies again, um, mm. which is fine. Um, but you've got me curious about seeing the ones I didn't like very much. So oh, good. Um, that's, that's exciting too. I love it when that happens. Um, so I, I mean, let's just start at the beginning. When did you first see Alien? What did you think of it? And tell me a little bit about the epic journey from, from there to here. Oh my gosh. Okay, so the first time I saw Alien, 
I had been out babysitting and the rest of my family had a family movie night in which they watched Alien. I think they'd borrowed the DVD from the library or something. So I came home at 10.30 p.m., realized that they had all watched Alien without me and said, well, everybody else saw it, including my younger brothers. Why can't I watch it tonight at 10.30 p.m. in the dark alone? (laughs) So I put in the DVD. I had seen bits and pieces of aliens just on TNT or something beforehand. So I knew who survives the movie and I knew a little bit like I knew about the chest bursting scene. Um, I knew bits and pieces about it, Um, but I was not prepared for this movie in the slightest. So picture me probably 15 or 16 years old home alone everybody else has gone to bed in the dark watching alien for the very first time um and it just sort of grabbed me and i don't think that it ever really fully let go so by the time that i was done with this movie of course i was terrified because i was not a horror movie person at the time and i was it must have been right around midnight, just after midnight, and I was flipping lights on across the house uh, as I was going as I was going to bed after watching this movie. Um, and then it just sort of stayed there in my head for the next couple of years, and I don't think I rewatched it for a few years. Um, and I didn't really get into the rest of the series until much later. So I I saw the first one. I loved Aliens. Um, And then I think I tried watching the other two immediate sequels, Alien 3 and Alien Resurrection at one point, um, and just couldn't really get through them. And then I just sort of let it lie. Um, Watched Prometheus and sort of didn't care for it. Um, And then slowly started to come around on these movies. Um, I think I listened to a podcast called the Alien Minute podcast, where they literally just like watch a minute of the movie Alien and then talk about it. Each episode is just devoted to a single minute of this movie. And I realized just how brilliant this movie was. So I started to revisit it and then um, saw Alien Covenant in theaters multiple times um, because I loved it so much and because it's just such a rich text. Um, So we can talk about Alien Covenant a little bit more later, I suppose. Um, But I've always taken science fiction and genre fiction seriously. So when I had the opportunity to write about religion and science fiction, Alien was kind of the place where I just naturally went because there's a lot going on in all of these movies, even just on the surface level. Um, And I love, I love this. I love this list you have at the beginning of chapter one of the, the many ways this film has been interpreted and it's a limited list. um, But uh, you, you you write Alien and its sequels have been considered as an anti-capitalist story, mm-hmm. like Avatar, I guess, uh, a, a Vietnam War parable, a refiguring of martyrs, mm-hmm. an eco-feminist satire, a distillation of the fear of rape, a tale about abortion, mm-hmm. a poorly conceived explanation <laughs> of creationism, <laughs> a haunted house thrill ride, a stalker film, a triumph and a mistake. I love that list. That's got me having flashbacks to all kinds of great essays and terrible reviews of these films. I probably mm-hmm. am responsible, I admit, for some of the terrible <laughs> reviews. But yeah, I mean, that's that's the sign of a great work of art anytime though, right? Is, is how, how flexible 
it is, how many different contexts we can open up, how many different uh, um, subjects and questions we can open up and explore because of the vocabulary provided by the film. But that's not what you were thinking about the first time. <laughs> no, no. The first time I was just terrified. <laughs> I didn't really, I, I mean, I really wasn't thinking about it other than this is a genuinely scary movie and I kind of want to get out of here. Um, and I think that's a mark of a really good movie is that it can be a simple story and it can also be um, a lot deeper and you can read a lot more themes into it. And I think especially the, the original Alien um, is just ripe for so many different kinds of interpretations. And you can watch it from the point of view of any one of the characters and still come away thinking that the movie did those that individual character justice, um, which I appreciate very much. Um, so yeah, I I don't know. It's just it's such a it's such a rich movie that rewards rewatching in a way that I just I couldn't not give it its due. Yeah, that, I've been thinking about this talking to my uh, creative writing students um, that if they don't bring the characters to life with. Um, very particular sensory information, uh, we're never going to get to talking about the ideas at the centers of the story because you've got to seduce the reader with, um, uh, and I don't mean that in a subversive way, but uh, you know, the whole lady, the whole conversation in Lady Bird about how love is attention. Mm -hmm. um, we, we will fall in love with the movie if we are paying attention and, and, and specificity is capturing our imagination. And whenever I go back to Alien, I love how it's such a spacious film, no pun intended. It's a spacious film in that there's so much silence, there's so much um, negative space on the screen. And then when the characters, as we get to know the characters, they are all so specific and they are, they are living so deeply in their world already. The performances are so great that we believe in these these characters and that's why we feel the fear when it when the horror strikes it strike we feel it so viscerally because they've become living breathing uh recognizable characters um in in this strange environment mm -hmm. um yeah it scared the daylights out of me the first time i saw it too i think i saw it on a very small tv with a very bad vhs tape oh, no. um and and yet and yet um I couldn't tear myself away and yet I didn't want to keep watching. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Mark of a good horror movie. And it's, it's funny that you call it spacious because I think it is both spacious um, especially because the world that this movie inhabits is so broad and you can tell that there's a lot going on that's not on the screen, but it's also a movie that makes me feel very claustrophobic. Oh, yeah. um, and I have no idea how they managed to pull off that balance, but it's, it's in, it's, it's such an efficient movie and it's so good at making you both feel the depth of the world that it's in. And then also making you know and understand that what is happening on the screen is the only important thing that is happening right now. In some ways, I guess it's the, it's kind of the opposite of why I don't feel much tension in movies like Star Trek movies or, or even Harry Potter movies. And I, I realize, I, I understand, I don't wanna step on anybody's toes, but when you have that much magic available to you, when you have that many tools available to you, when your world is that busy, and whenever you need a way out of something and a new character shows up who has a way out of it, the tension just dissolves for me. 
because I, I can think of 12 ways out of any particular situation in the Harry Potter universe. In Alien, the spaciousness is a way of showing you how few options you have in any situation. Mm-hmm. And survival, I mean, I, I, I feel the quest for survival there more than ever, I ever felt it on TV's, you know, lost because <laughs> you look around and there's, there's, you have so few options, so few places to hide. So yeah, the claustrophobia and the spaciousness, I think are kind of inseparable. And the okay, level we, of detail ahead. too, like um, yes. Ridley's, I mean, Ridley Scott had written backstories for all of these characters um, kind of in tandem with the writers. But when they were actually filming the movie, um, a lot of the actors would come up to him and say like, what's my motivation for the scene? What's my motivation for the scene? And he would tell them your motivation is that if it gets you, your head is going to be bitten off. Now let's go play. <laughs> and I, I love that that sense of like having priorities and knowing like what's going to serve this story and then what is just going to be a distraction. And Alien is a very undistracted movie. It's it's the focus is so singular and it works so well. But they're professionals. I mean, mm-hmm. they're they are they are um, blue collar. <laughs> uh, they're in the guts of that ship. The the plumbing looks like guts and yet they are surgeons. They know what they're doing. They're down there mm-hmm. talking about all kinds of things, talking about, you know, the, the union or whatever, talking about workers' rights as they perform surgery on this spaceship. And that increases my confidence in them as professionals and that they know what they're doing there so that when they look unsettled, I am very unsettled because they are rattled in, in the place where they seem to know everything. And, um, that makes them, to use one of my students' favorite words when it comes to art, relatable. Um, they are relatable characters in a seemingly foreign situation, foreign circumstance. And yet we have not even scratched the surface of where you go with this. Not in the slightest. <laughs> in your book. Where did that curiosity, that kind of questioning start for you with these films? Oh, man. Oh, I've always been interested in reading into questions of faith and who we are and what are we doing in this world and why, like, I don't know. One of, one of the things that makes me feel not so alone is the idea that we as human beings make movies and then we go and we sit in dark rooms and we watch them and we watch other people pretend to be things that they are not. Um, and we derive meaning from that. And I find that really fascinating. So I've always been kind of interested in looking into the deeper meaning within a given movie and just sort of leaning into those questions that those movies raise. Um, and I'm also raised in the evangelical church. So very steeped in like raising questions about faith and why, um, like, I don't know why we believe what we believe. Um, so it just felt like a natural fit to think about the alien movies as an exploration of evil, like horror movies in particular are very focused on what is right and moral, right? Like especially slasher movies. Um, but this particular series is so focused on staring into that abyss and trying to understand it and not really coming away with any good answers. And I like that. Like, I like that there's this gray space in all of these movies where the movie is content to just sit and say, there's bad stuff out there. Like, what are we going to do about it? And even though each movie 
gets a little bit closer to answering the question. It doesn't quite get there. It's, it's kind of an asymptotic journey. Um, and I appreciate that because that's life too. Like we're never going to know all of the answers. Um, so we might as well grow and develop and, and learn alongside this piece of art. And then maybe we'll learn something in the process or not. It's also just an enjoyable experience to just sit in a dark room and be scared sometimes. Yeah. I, I think that another thing you and I have in common is that shared uh, upbringing in evangelical mm -hmm. uh, contexts and communities where the focus was always what, 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 what's the moral of the story? What's the meaning of this story? And I don't know if this is true for you, but um, movies and art were, were treated with great suspicion in a lot of those communities. And I found being able to justify my love of movies by by convincing people that there was a moral to the story, by convincing people that there was meaning in there became, for better or worse, one of my self-serving drives in uh, defending my, my, my obsession. Um, and Alien was one of those R-rated movies that I was not allowed to see uh, when it came out. I saw it later, I saw it probably late high school, I think. Um, but I remember right away, uh, after all the scary stuff starts happening, conversations in the movie that are curiously preoccupied with questions of conscience. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm sure you're, you're thinking of the very conversation that I'm thinking of that to, to me is, is to me, for me, the most important moment in the franchise, uh, is the, the conversation between Ash and Ripley um, about about conscience mm -hmm. um, and that, that transforms the whole experience for me because it could just be a monster movie. There's this thing that has no conscience, that's a predator that's running around wanting to eat them. But then something far more disturbing comes up. This concept of we being creatures of conscience wanting not to annihilate this thing that threatens us, but to exploit it. Mm -hmm. um, suddenly it got a lot more complicated than any monster movie I had yet experienced. Now I come to appreciate just how that's a, actually a grand tradition in literature. And now I know what, now I appreciate what Frankenstein is really all about. But that was sort of an awakening for me of just how science fiction could become a vocabulary for some of these very important questions that the simplistic vocabulary of my Sunday school classes had not prepared me for. Is that anything like your, your journey into, into that? Yeah, I think so. I, I like to think about things in the abstract and I think that science fiction is really helpful for that because you can take something, any issue or any problem that you're thinking over and you can just kind of drop it into a science fiction setting. And for me personally, that allows me to be able to think through the problem a little bit more thoroughly because it's at a remove. I'm a little bit more detached from it. Mm -hmm. um, it's funny that it's funny that you mentioned having to justify watching movies because the first, um, the, the first movie reviews that I read when I was growing up were the kind where they count the swear words and they talk about like the good and the bad of a given story. And then that was what I used to figure out like what I could get away with watching. Um, and that is not remotely the kind of criticism that I'm interested in now because it doesn't really grapple with the thorny questions of life. Um, 
And I think the the movies that are most interesting are the ones that are not didactic at all. And Alien is not didactic. It just presents this this situation in which these people are exploited both by a monster and also by the company that they work for. Um, and they're, they're essentially turned into tools and forced to do something that they never would have done had they been given any choice. Um, and in so doing, they're, they're subjected to this, this, the most monstrous behavior, behavior that I can think of, which is to take a person and then just treat them as though they're nothing. They're, they're just a tool and a means to get to an end. Um, in the company's case, that's profit. And in the alien's case, that's just an incubator for its own young. Um, and I, I think that that vision of the world meshes quite nicely with Catherine Keller's um, ideas about sin and about creation. Um, it's a it's a feminist theological view of the world in which sin is not necessarily violence. Sin is not necessarily like just doing bad things. It is the denial of the relationships between created beings. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is what Alien illustrates beautifully um in a way that i don't know it's it's hard to it's hard to talk about because it, it is so abstract and i think that alien both makes that concept concrete and then also makes it a lot easier to conceive of because it's this thing that's happening in another world somewhere in a, in a fantastical place that i don't necessarily want to visit <laughs> yeah um which which fits so perfectly with your your description of just the, the the fundamental value of science fiction as a as a genre right there uh at the beginning of your book um i i'm, I'm going to read your own words words back to you again so <laughs> science fiction provides a useful framework for considering issues from our own world in the context of another we can lift a concept inequality prejudice gender fear of nuclear fallout the value of a human life and drop it into a new and strange setting. Uh, this new environment, like the light of an alien sun, illuminates the concept in a way we cannot see on our own soil, trapped as we are in our own contexts. I, I love that. That reminds me of um, another great horror filmmaker, David Cronenberg, mm -hmm. said, I think of horror films um, and not science fiction necessarily, but horror specifically, I think of horror films as art, as films of confrontation, films that make you confront aspects of your own life that are difficult to face. Mm -hmm. And I'm finding that so true right now in a very contentious time, I mean, mm -hmm. more contentious than usual when there are so many issues that are difficult to talk about that it's, it just seems almost impossible in so many communities to sit down face to face and talk about the issue. Mm -hmm. But if you can put a story on the table or a movie on the screen that confronts you both with the mess of it, it takes the, it takes the fear to some extent, it takes the threat, maybe that's it, the nature of the threat in the conversation out because you're looking at something uh, together as, as bystanders and, and speaking conceptually, and it doesn't feel quite as personal. Mm -hmm. um, so it seems to me like this is a great time for horror movies. And maybe, in, maybe it's why so many of my students who don't go to the movies do go to horror movies. I've been trying to figure that out. I'm, I'm wondering if that has something to do with the times we're living in, the, the, 
these difficult times, hashtag. Um, if, if that's why so many of them are drawn to horror right now, maybe it's giving them a way to think through some of these difficult things in a, in a, in a way that makes them feel less vulnerable, mm. um, in a way that makes these questions not quite so direct. I don't know. This is a, this is a big abstract mysterious question. To, I don't have an answer to it, but I wonder what would happen if we sat a, a class of undergraduates through the alien series and had you sort of guide them movie by movie. What would that, what kinds of questions would that give us opportunity to discuss with them? Oh, so many, honestly. Um, I, it makes me wonder if Jesus spoke in parables for a very similar reason. <laughs> yeah. it just it, se- it that seems like a natural extension. And I also I also think and strongly suspect that horror movies are really popular because, um, or at least going to see horror movies are popular because it's a way for people to wrestle with these questions in community with each other. Horror movies aren't fun to go see alone. They're fun to go see with a large crowd of people on like opening weekend, especially. Um, and to enjoy both the the thrill of seeing something that's maybe unseemly and then also to feel the catharsis as everybody's leaving the theater at the same time. Like you're, you're able to work through these problems in real time with complete strangers and you share that experience with someone and... I don't know that that feel that makes me feel closer to somebody who I probably would never actually talk to in real life in a way because we've both been through the same thing and come out the other side. You mentioned Dr. Catherine Keller, and this was my introduction to her to her uh, theology. Um, tell me a little bit about how you discovered her and how the connections started happening between this series of films and her ideas about good and evil. Funny you should mention that. Um, my husband actually introduced me to her work. Um, he is an MDiv, um, so he's he knows his stuff. Um, and I told him that I was kicking around uh, some ideas about feminism and evil um, and just the nature of being. And he said, you should read this book. Um, so I did. <laughs> and then uh, the idea to write about Alien just sort of grew from there. Um, which is kind of funny because this particular book um, isn't necessarily a meditation on the nature of evil. Like that's just a, a side um, side effect, not really a side effect. It's it's a branching out from the ideas that are discussed in her book. So um, the text that I'm drawing from is called Face of the Deep, A Theology of Becoming. And it is a refiguring of the first two verses of Genesis um, in a way that says, well, maybe the doctrine of creation ex nihilo isn't actually a thing. Like she, she claims that it was, it was developed much later after the Bible was written. And so she focuses on this idea of God creating the world in a way where the creation is always already happening constantly. Mm. Um, And so God is, is ordering the universe and providing that order. And that, um, I don't know, providing the rules and the relationships with which we live in the world that we live in. Um, But that doesn't mean that the formlessness and the void that exists at the beginning of Genesis is bad either. It's just the potential to become. The blank canvas. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, and not even necessarily like 
a blank canvas because I think that that implies the absence of something. Um, she talks about it as being the possibility for everything. Wow, um, that's great. Yeah, it's it's incredibly heady stuff, um, but I love it. And the way that she talks about the world as being a good thing because God has given it the relationships that it has between every creative thing mm. um, also extends to mean that if you are going to behave as though nobody else's relationships exist or matter, then that is a sin and an affront. Um, and then that's where evil comes from, essentially, is this denial of those relationships, um, which is a really natural fit for the alien movies, I think, because so much of what is going on that is evil in these movies is the company saying, you're not a person, you're just a cog in the machine or the alien taking people and turning them into fodder um, and into incubators. That reminds me a lot, um, the, the writer Andy Crouch um, spoke at Seattle Pacific a few years ago. Well, I keep saying a few, year after year after year, it's probably several at this point. Uh, and he talked about how the, cre the, the voice of the creator in Genesis is not the voice of a director or a captain. It's, it's, um, it's not make it so it's, it's um, first of all, it's conversational. Um, let us, uh, and it's propositional. Uh, like, what if? What mm -hmm. if we did this? Let let there be. Let there be. Let there be light. Let there be this. And then they see that it is good, right? And so it is this. It's it's the the artist's way, um, seeing possibility. And that mm -hmm. seems to that seems to um, align uh, for me just intuitively. Mm -hmm. uh, with how you're sort of summarizing uh, Keller here, that um, it's not a coercive use of power. Not at all. But a yeah. curious, uh, a, a fundamentally curious and playful use of power. Mm -hmm. um, and that, I'm sorry, this is just, this is what happens. You, you, you blow my mind with something and I start seeing new connections. Somebody was uh, re recently walking me back through Psalm 23 and saying, you realize that the word for the Lord in these, in these Psalms is at its root of verb. Mm. So love is my shepherd. Mm. I shall not want. Um, love walks with me through the valley of the shadow of death and love is active. Love is always active. So in that case, the creator is a verb. The, the, the creative force is, is, is affectionate and is, is loving and is always making uh, against forces of unmaking. Right. Mm. Um, no wonder this book started making so much sense to me. It just, it's, you know how you see a word and then suddenly you learn a new word and suddenly you see it everywhere and wonder why you mm -hmm. didn't notice it before. The ideas at the beginning of your book are doing that for me. It's like all kinds of things are just suddenly magnetically connecting. Oh, um, so thank you for that. Um, I, now I love this series more. <laughs> That's good. I feel like I've done my job then. <laughs> I hope a lot of people are going to discover this. And I, I, I know that uh, even fans of Alien are, uh, have their list of the, the movies that, that are canon <laughs> or the, the movies that they will rewatch and the movies they 
where, where they decide the real story ended or something. Mm-hmm. And I remember being furious when I went to Alien 3 and watched the, that pre-credits sequence when so much of what I'd invested in, so many characters I'd invested in, suddenly suddenly, all of that was kind of thrown out the window mm-hmm. um, or at least glass was broken. And um, I kind of res- sat there in resentment in the theater for a long time. But then a lo- there were a lot of really wonderful ideas in that third one. And I think some that for Christian moviegoers who are looking for Christ figures, they're going to find all kinds of Christological stuff going in Alien, in Alien 3. And then the films, like the Dune books for me, sort of become more and more philosophical. Mm-hmm. And the, the big scary scenes with the alien attacks start to feel more like punctuation or um, drum solos or something in the middle of a grand concert of ideas and questions. Mm-hmm. Would you be willing, would you indulge us uh, in sort of hopscotching through this series uh, and just, just give us a glimpse of what we might learn or what questions you might introduce for us in this book uh, as we revisit the series. Um, I'd love to do that. That's ambitious um, and it may take a little while, but I'd love it. <laughs> I would I would love to do that. Um, I actually just took a group of friends who had never seen the Alien movies through the Alien series. And we literally just wrapped up this past week. So I'm very much fired up about some of the later ones more so than I even wow. usually am. Okay. Um, which is really nice because I, I think every time I go through the series, I find something to love about the movies that I've discounted as well. So hopefully I'll do those ones and the more classically quote unquote good alien movies some justice too. Well, without um, exhausting the ideas in the book, without without spoiling too much for us about the book, um, do you feel like you've you've we, we've sort of covered the first one here, mm-hmm. or is there is there any, another another little detail you want to spotlight there? Do you have like a, a favorite character you want to geek out about? What would be <laughs> what would oh, you like man. to say? I mean, there's so much to say about Alien, and I don't. I feel like um, even having written a book about the movie, um, there's still so much more that I could say. I think one of the things that I come away from this movie um, thinking about is the idea that institutions can't save you. Um, and there's this moment when Ripley is trying desperately to first trip the self-destruct in the Nostromo, and then afterwards she's trying to fix the self-destruct because something's come up and she can't escape the way that she thought she was going to be able to and all of the rules and regulations that have been set in place ostensibly to protect her are really just to protect company property right and they're not there for her they're there for the company's profits she's expendable Um, yeah she is expendable just like everybody else in the crew um and she's been the person who's been the most by the book um, member of the crew up until that point as well. So it's an, it's a, it's a grim reminder. I think that institutions aren't necessarily like good or bad, but they can definitely be twisted depending on who's at the helm. Um, so that's one of those things where it always surprises me every time I watch it, but then I, it comes back and I remember like, oh yeah, this, this is a movie that is also about labor and it is about power, um, not just the power to destroy, but also the power to, to crush someone's soul. Um, and yeah, I don't know. This one's still my favorite alien movie, probably. It's um, one too, yeah. It's, you don't get any of the other alien movies without this one. Right. Um, so even if, if that then, there's it's 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 my favorite one but occasionally (laughs) 
having if I have watched another one more recently, then I'll say that that one's my favorite. So, but it, Alien is my all time favorite. Maybe um, maybe more maybe more maybe more than any other movie, but Jaws. I think for me, it's also the the perfect illustration of less is more. Yes. Uh, so much is made of so little, really, in that in that film, and the films seem to get bigger and bigger as they go in some ways. Uh, and I miss I miss the intimacy of that crew of being and the up. patience. Yes, yes. Yeah. Like the the chestburster scene doesn't happen until the midpoint of the runtime. Right. Like, and if and, and just in case anybody hasn't seen Alien and is listening to this and you keep hearing this reference to the chestburster scene, I know that really sounds uh terrible, like like something that must be really awful. It is. Um, you're right. You're right. And please beware. Uh, proceed with caution. But yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so aliens? Alien. Let's check that box and and move on. Aliens. Uh, aliens. The, the big James Cameron. Uh, everything is bigger. Everything is louder. Uh, and yet there's there's a familiar backbone to this one. Yeah, the all of the alien movies kind of have the same skeletal structure, mm-hmm. um, which I like. Talking about that in view of the xenomorph, <laughs> I'm sure Giger would uh, approve. But yes, I, I would certainly hope so. <laughs> yeah, um, but one of the things that I like is that because they all have that same structure, each director that comes to the story can tell their own story in their own way. So, Alien is very much a Ridley Scott movie, and then. The other movies that Ridley Scott directed are also very much Ridley Scott movies, but Aliens is, I can't imagine anybody else besides James Cameron making it. Um, And the thing that separates it from all of the others for me is this, this concept of heart. Like Aliens is heart and it is pumping action and there's a lot of big bulky feelings going on. Um, both with Ripley herself and then with the colonial Marines who joined the group. Um, and then also this this really tender mother-daughter relationship that kind of springs up between her and Carrie Hen's Newt. Um, so Aliens starts the tradition of taking a very familiar framework and then putting very different meat on those bones. Um, but it's also a meditation on just the breadth of the effects of this concept of discreation or like of, of sin as discreation or, or destroying relationships with people. Um, because it's a James Cameron movie, it also focuses a lot on the effects of colonialism and corporate structures. And there's a lot going on in there about how that, that, serves to flesh out how the company that sends the original crew of the original alien to their desk, like how they could possibly justify those actions. Um, and it does so in a way that is feels almost melodramatic in places. And I think that that works for this movie. There's a lot of excess. It's definitely a, a very rangy movie, um, but it works because it's bigger because everything in this movie is bigger. Um, so it's, it's also up there, I guess, if we're, if we're rating this on a scale of like one to five xenomorphs, uh, aliens go. would be four xenomorphs, um, and the original alien would be five. For, uh, full disclosure, as skeptical as I am of rating art in, in any way, it's also a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I, I did sort of plant, that's a scary word to use in this context of, of xenomorphs. The idea 
that maybe we would have some fun rating the movie. So I'm, I'm glad she, she, she went there just now, but yes. I'm always um, happy to go there. And I'm also delighted by the irony of giving a movie that is called alien five xenomorphs as yes, a rating as yes, well. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, and by the way, uh, if anybody wants to to come visit me here in Seattle, I will be glad to to point you to uh, Mopop, the Museum of of Pop Culture in downtown Seattle, where one of the original xenomorphs uh, lives in an enormous glass case, and I have it's seen incredible. it with mine own eyes. Yes, it's incredible. I, th- I think they renamed the Mopop after I moved away because at the time it was the yes. Museum of Science Fiction and Fantasy. I think, right, um, right. But yeah, I actually went to an SPU dance at the Mopop, <laughs> and it was when I, just, I actually did two. So there were there were two um, my freshman year and my sophomore year. Freshman year, I think they had a Star Wars exhibit that we could go into sophomore year. They had a horror movies exhibit, which was when they got a hold of that alien suit. Um, and that made my night. Like I wasn't even out on the dance floor. I was just in amongst all of the horror movie props, like looking at everything and being a little bit freaked out because at, at the time I was interested in horror, but definitely not a buff by any stretch of the imagination. But I saw the Xenomorph and I saw the, I think they had one of the eggs as well. Yes. Um, and it was the highlight of my evening. <laughs> they um, So now, I don't know how much has changed since you were there. Now there is a museum of science fiction and fantasy. And there is a museum of horror. Okay, that's that's a change. But that makes me want to come back to Seattle. <laughs> and I believe the Xenomorph is in the horror museum, which is interesting. That makes sense. Uh, but yeah, like like you can you can see Deckard's gun from Blade Runner. Uh, the hovering police car is 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 in the air over you when you go to the ticket counter inside. It's an amazing place, people. Um, but we need to move on. Um, I, 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 did, I did want to note, though, you you mentioned an SPU dance, and I, I always have to pause and just appreciate what a sign of hope this is. Because when I was an undergrad at SPU, an SPU dance would have would have been shut down, and uh, would you know there would have been consequences. So, so things change, and uh, yeah. Uh, find some hope in that people who are worried about various questions i'll just race abounds yeah leave it there all right alien three alien three the one that broke my heart and and then i i continue to struggle with it because there's a there's a history to this movie Mm -hmm. and there's a history to the versions of this movie that exist Mm mm-hmm and it was originally going to be made by a filmmaker I was very, very excited about at the time. Uh, Vincent Ward. I hope I'm getting his name right here. Yeah, it was Vincent like, Ward. Right. Yeah. And he, yeah, he had made a couple of really remarkable films. Uh, and so I couldn't wait to see what he did with Alien. And then it ended up with David Fincher, who I didn't know very well. Mm-hmm. And it got all controversial. But in retrospect, I think it's a remarkable document uh, about the i mean just in the making of it the what can happen when the forces of commerce and the for, forces of artistry collide um but where do you uh come down on on alien three or is it oh, um it's it's a tragic movie for me, partly because there's so much that could have been. Um, and you can actually see a lot of the DNA of Vincent Ward's ideas in David Fincher's movie, um, mm-hmm. even though Fincher himself has since disavowed this movie. He won't talk about it. Um, it was his first feature film uh, and the studio treated him pretty terribly. Um, 
This so is a I, common experience. Scott Derrickson is the same way about his remake of The Day the Earth Stood Still. Mm. He doesn't want to have anything to do with that, considering what the studio did with it. But yeah, this keeps happening. When will studios learn? <laughs> to just let the artists make, make the art? I don't know. Um, I actually do think that the parts of this movie that work, work incredibly well. Um, so mm -hmm. I actually kind of approve of the decision to kill off the characters that were killed off and to make the changes from aliens uh, that were made. Um, this is a movie that settles into an existential horror. Um, it kind of lets the, a lot of the gore take a back seat. Um, and I appreciate that it is willing to go to such deep depths to explore that idea of existential horror on a prison planet where Ripley is the only woman and she's, she's stuck there and there's no way for her to get out. Um, I love Charles dance in this movie as well. Yes, I do too. He's incredible. Um, I need to see more of his stuff actually. Um, but yeah, I, I love Charles dance. I love the despair. I love the critique of religious fundamentalism, um, which mm -hmm. is very strong in this one. Um, and and it kind of the first time, the first time in the series, right. That they've really gone there, that they've really directly engaged with questions about religion. Yeah. Like people, people swear a lot um, in the, in the first two movies, like they, they will say Jesus name when they see something that is horrifying. But yeah, this is the first time that, religion is explicitly invoked and i think they do it really well um because a lot of what this movie does is where, where aliens talks about the breadth of the effects of sin uh alien 3 talks about the depth of those effects and the dehumanization particularly of the prisoners on this planet who are trapped where they are both by the company and then also by the belief that they themselves are completely irredeemable Mm. Um, and I appreciate that it takes Ripley falling to this planet, um, and the arrival of an alien for these prisoners to be shaken out of that complacency and to realize that they are, they are still human beings who have agency and who are capable of doing things in order to affect some sort of grace. And the grace here is very small and very grimy and kind of terrible, but this movie really does work for me. It kind of falls apart towards the very end, um, but I, I love this movie and I love it more the more I watch it. Um, so maybe 3.5 Xenomorphs, um, but on a good day, it's four. <laughs> yeah. And uh, they keep taking the Xenomorph into new shapes and sizes. And there's there's something really terrifying about uh, the, the version of the Xenomorph we get in that film. Um, <laughs> Oh man, we, I'm, I'm looking at the time. This we, we got to keep moving, but there's, oh, there's, there's so many other questions I have about alien three. Um, I, I love the, the, the sort of incarnational aspect of, uh, of where the direction they're taking the character of Ripley in, in that story. Um, and, and what will, what, you know, what will happen when we get to resurrection which is where we are right so oh yep we're we're at resurrection this is the one alien movie that i do not like um really okay which is yeah which is funny because i have written multiple things defending this movie <laughs> um and the thing that i like about it is that it has guts it's both disgusting it is genuinely the grossest of out of, out of all of the alien movies um but it also has the guts to take the whole franchise into a place where it's kind of a farce mm -hmm. um 
And it's a little ridiculous and it is committed to that tone. It's a Jean-Pierre Jeunet movie. Yep. Very (laughs) weird. (laughs) Um, For those of you who don't know, he made Amelie and he made Delicatessen. City of Lost Children. And City of Lost Children. And it was just like, what in the world is an alien gonna alien movie gonna look like through this guy's imagination? Because he he is a kid at heart. He is irre he is irrepressibly having fun. And what was gonna happen in in a horror context for this? Um and then throw Winona Ryder into the mix. Um yes, anyway. I have opinions about that piece of casting, but I do like her character. Um I do yeah, too. I don't know. It's 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 a weird movie to to understate it, I think. Um, but it's will it knows that it's weird and it's willing to lean into that. Um, and it's also a movie that kind of challenges the the notion of what it means to be human because it is the first movie in which an android is a point of view character who is treated as a character with their own agency. And I I love that about this particular movie because it kind of turns this question of like humanity is terrible because humanity does terrible things to each other, but humanity also does terrible things to the, to the people that they create as well. Um, and what are we supposed to do with that? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that this particular movie's answer to that is honestly kind of perfect, even though I don't love the way that that story is told. Um, yeah, it's, it's absurd and it is strange. Um, 2.5 xenomorphs i think yeah, yeah yeah and as as much as i love their experimentation with the camera um it's very distracting cinematography mm-hmm. uh very show-offy cinematography mm-hmm. and uh, i remember it feeling more like an amusement park ride in some in some ways than any of the films before that as well mm-hmm. um all right a lot of swooping yeah yes and then we had if i remember right there was quite a gap mm-hmm. between yeah. resurrection and the films that came next. Yeah, Resurrection came out in 1997, and then Prometheus didn't come out until 2012. We're not counting the Alien versus Predator movies in this no, because please. they they don't count. Yeah. Um, and they were also retconned into oblivion by Prometheus, and thank goodness for that. Yes. Um, Prometheus is a, is a also a weird one because it is. I think it is the most. It is the movie that is most unlike an alien movie, despite Alien Resurrection being a complete farce. I I think Prometheus is trying to both be set in the alien universe and then also tell a story that is completely mythic and outside of that continuity, um, while also trying to set stepping stones to explain part of how the alien movies came to be. And that doesn't work for me. There's just too much going on in there. You can't really maintain that kind of of tension um, and have a single cohesive story. Um, But I do appreciate just the, the, the willingness to, on Ridley Scott's, part uh, to try to go back to the origins of the alien itself and to explore this this one set that he loved uh, when they were filming the original movie. Um, he had to fight with the studio to make the space jockey set, which is where mm-hmm. the crew first finds the eggs for the alien. Um, he literally made that set behind the back of 20th Century Fox. Like they were not going to allow him to do it. They had a producer on set to tell him not to do it. And he did it anyway. Um, and then the following movies all just completely ignore the fact that there is this other alien species out there that humanity discovered. And there's no questions about it at all. Um, so Scott said, I would like to go explore this part of the story. Um, and he does. And it doesn't fully work. Um but as a story about 
creation and about stealing fire um, and about people who are reaching beyond the bounds that have been set for them. I, I think there are places where it works. Um, it's gorgeous for one, um, where alien resurrection cinematography doesn't work for you. Prometheus's cinematography really works for me. Um, and the score is incredible as well. Um, it's just, it's one of, it's one of those movies where I think about it for a really long time after watching it. And I think mm, better in some ways than I thought it was and worse in some ways than I thought it was. And then I'll, I'll continue thinking about it for months and months afterwards. And I'll say like, Oh, that movie wasn't so bad. I should go back and watch it. And then I watch the first 20 minutes and I'm blown away. And then I remember why there are parts of this movie that I don't like very much. And that's just because the execution doesn't quite cohere. It has some great acting though. Yeah, it does. Um, Michael Fassbender's incredible. Yes. Um, Numi Rapace is also fantastic in this particular mm -hmm. movie. She really mm -hmm. sells terror in a way that not very many people can do. Um, yeah, yeah. 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 I love, yeah. I love their work in it, especially. Um, so three xenomorphs, um, okay. partly because it tries to, to eat its cake and have it too. <laughs> Um, and then we come to Alien Covenant, which is a movie that I am madly in love with. Um, it's wow. probably my second favorite Alien movie. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm going to need some convincing. I, I have to admit, <laughs> I haven't I haven't gotten through that part of the book yet, but I will. It's rich. Um, there's so much happening in here, and so much of it is drawing on these influences, particularly from the romantics, like we're talking Percy Shelley and Mary Shelley, Frankenstein, um, Milton uh, is definitely a, a huge influence on this particular movie as well. Um, it's lit like a Goya painting. Um, and then there's also the series of paintings by Arnold Bachlin, um, who painted uh, Isle of Death. He was, he was a, um, I want to say a, I can't remember the school of paintings in this, sorry. Um, but he painted a lot of like representational art, but he wouldn't explain what it meant. And so there's this painting called Isle of Death that's a fairy person bringing what looks to be a corpse to an island that is covered in cypress trees. And that painting is recreated in one of the shots in Alien Covenant at one point. There's a shot of a garden that looks exactly like it. Um, of course, there's also a lot of influence from H.R. Giger in here as well. Um, but it's it's such a rich it's it is drawing on such a rich tradition of art and art history in a way that feels respectful and then also in a way that feels true to the story and alien covenant in particular is kind of a summation of all of the other alien movies that have come before it and it's it synthesizes everything that they're saying and then tells a cohesive very bleak very dark story with it um this movie disturbs me greatly. I am extremely unsettled by it. Um, and I kind of like sitting in that discomfort. So I don't know what to do with the ending. I know that there are plans in the future to make more alien movies. Ridley Scott himself has said that he's got a couple more sequels in him. We'll see if that happens or not, um, given Disney overlords. Um, but it's an incredible piece of work and it is slippery and it is complicated. And I love that it doesn't really tie things up in a neat little bow. Um, so I, I appreciate it. Also, it's just like Prometheus before it, it is gorgeous and the score is incredible too. Whenever, whenever a franchise starts to get this far along, I, I, I 
feel like we're slipping into just sort of diminishing returns because what motivates the filmmakers who have who 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 join the party, so to speak, they've been living with these films for so long that they have their own particular questions, their own the loose ends they've been worrying for years, mm-hmm. and they can't wait to do something with that. Which I understand that impulse. I mean, that's the impulse of all fan fiction, right? Mm-hmm. But once it becomes part of the series, that's one less loose end uh, of the original. And, you know, it's, it's like what's happened with the Star Wars movies over the years. So much mystery has been wrung out of the galaxy by getting, quote unquote, canonical answers to things that we didn't need answers to. Mm-hmm. And that were the things that teased our imaginations into active, creative work of our own. Um, I love that unexplained uh, alien life form from the original. And I remember, even though I wasn't allowed to watch the movie, I was fascinated by images of that, that I saw in stuff attached to the movie. Mm. And to go back to it was both intriguing. And yet there, I had this sense of a different kind of dread about an alien movie that it was, it wasn't going to be a mystery anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's my concern. If they continue is, um, I, I love the idea. I mean, it's such a fundamental idea of art that you take a formula, you take uh, a song and you give it a new interpretation, you find new things in it. Um, I mean, that's, that's art, right? But um, at the same time, um, again, what was so wonderful about that first one was that they did so much with so little. And it's, it is hard to go back and see that movie um, and appreciate those things again without all of this other stuff now buzzing in my head about it. Mm-hmm. Um, do you, are you eager to see another one? I kind of don't want those dots to be connected. I would prefer it if they kept, they kept a few things mysterious. Is um, there, is there any artist, is there any filmmaker who you'd be like, okay, I need to see that person's alien. It's funny, you asked that question and a name immediately popped into my head. I'd love to see Alex Garland take on the series. Um, wow. I think he'd do some really interesting stuff with it. I feel like he almost already has, in a way. There is a lot of alien DNA in Annihilation. There is a mm-hmm. lot of alien DNA in um, in Ex Machina. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I'm kind of curious to see how he would take on the alien formula proper though. Yeah. Um, Yeah. yeah, But yeah. Yeah. He makes scary movies. That's for sure. Scary on an ideological level. Yeah. 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 Great. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Um, This is already the longest episode of this podcast I have, I have yet made. And um, clearly it could, could just be part one. Um, This is so much fun. This was a delight. um, Please. Uh, tell people a how you would like them to obtain your book this is becoming a common question in these kinds of interviews i've noticed uh, it's quietly saying how do we avoid the evil empire um, how would you <laughs> how would you like people to find your book 
Uh, you can pre-order it both from the um, publisher with in stock uh, on their website. Um, you can also pre-order it from Bookshop, uh, which is a fabulous organization, um, bookshop.org. Um, and then uh, if you're a Chicago local, um, it's also available for pre-order from Women and Children First, uh, which is an indie feminist bookstore that is... Um, an institution in the city. It's actually been around since 1979. So it's just as old as the alien movies as well. Wow. Um, and uh, sending your dollars their way would definitely be much appreciated as well. Okay. And where can people who are coming away from this going, Sarah Welch Larson, where have you been all my life? Uh, where can they find you? Um, I write for Brightwell Darkroom and for Think Christian, and I podcast with them as well. Uh, you can find me all over the internet, but especially on Twitter under the handle Dodgy Boffin, that's D-O-D-G-Y-B-O-F-F-I-N, uh, where I spend most of my time shouting about science fiction. So please, if you like to do that, you can join me there too. Well, and I should say I, I enjoy uh, following you on Letterboxd as well. Oh, um, yes. Well, okay, I'm going to throw one last question at you. And that is because um, I, I am constantly hoping that people will realize that this is not obsessing about movies, talking about theology in movies. It's, yeah, it's an exciting and enthralling conversation and a labyrinth unto itself. But we do bring things back uh, from those excursions. Can you think of anything that you would highlight um, how has your immersion in the alien stories um, changed something about an ordinary day for you? Mm. I mean, just as a sort of example of what I'm talking about, I cannot buy a cup of coffee without thinking of Vim Vender's film, Wings of Desire, mm -hmm. because I witnessed an angel becoming a human being and holding a hot cup of coffee in his hands for the first time and suddenly, finally realizing why human beings get so excited about coffee. And it has made that moment that a barista hands me a cardboard cup sacred in a way that it never was before. Um, these things revise uh, how we see uh, and how we live in some ways. Um, I don't know that this late at night, I want to figure out how alien has influenced um, how I see the world, but uh, it might be, it might be more readily available for you since you've been living in these questions so much lately. For so long. Um, I think they've made me realize, and this might also just be the time that we're living in too. I think they've made me realize just how much I value the kindness of a human touch. Mm. Um, there's a lot of, of, gestures in a lot of these movies between people who know and trust each other, whether it's like a squeeze on the shoulder or from, from Ripley to Newt, especially like a hug um, or the willingness to just spend some time wiping the dirt off, off a little girl's face. Um, there's a lot of violence in these movies. And I think that that makes the tenderness all the more poignant. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, the, the, the value of a human touch that is some, something that is meant in kindness without any desire of reciprocity. Yeah. 
So there it is, just a few days from Valentine's Day. Sarah Welch Larson <laughs> recommends the Alien movies for your Valentine's Day date night. Okay? Oh, yes. <laughs> so uh, take her advice. You'll thank her for it. <laughs> We're going to get sued. Okay. Um, Sarah, thank you so much. This was a blast. Hopefully, Lord willing, I get to go to one of your book events someday. Um, and selfishly, we, we've, we've got to watch a horror movie together someday. Um, yes, please. All right. Uh, my, my best to your MDiv husband genius <laughs> and uh, have fun with your, your book release. Um, it, it will definitely be distinct uh, happening when it's happening. Uh, but I wish you, wish you and your family the best. And Thank we'll you do, so much. We'll do this again sometime. Of course. Absolutely. If you will. All right. Take care. <laughs> You've been listening to a Master Shot episode of Looking Closer with Jeffrey Overstreet. You can find more than two decades worth of writing on the arts, especially movies, at lookingcloser.org. You can follow me at facebook.com slash lookingcloser. And I'm on Twitter as Overstreet. Both the writing at lookingcloser.org and these recordings are made possible by those readers and listeners generous enough to respond with donations. To learn how you can support Looking Closer, email overstreetlookingcloser at gmail.com. That's overstreetlookingcloser at gmail.com. You can also dig deeper by picking up a copy of my memoir of dangerous moviegoing, a book called Through a Screen Darkly. Or you can explore my adventures in storytelling by reading the novel Aurelia's Colors, and its three sequels. Original music for this episode comes from Todd Fadel, a friend of mine since early childhood and half of the band Agents of Future. Look them up at agentsoffuture.bandcamp.com. If you have questions about what you've heard, email overstreetlookingcloser at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Jeffrey Overstreet saying, look closer. I want to know what you see.